welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being and I'm delighted that you're here. Morning everyone, I hope you're having a fabulous week. Uh, today on the podcast, I'm super stoked to bring to you my conversation with Professor Julia Rutledge from University of Canterbury. Now, anyone who's interested in nutrition will probably be super familiar with Julia's work because she is very well known for her work in nutrients and mental health. She's a professor of clinical psychology in the Department of Psychology at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch here in New Zealand, though she's originally from Toronto. She did her training in neurobiology and clinical psychology before going on and doing her PhD. And her interests in nutrition and mental illness grew out of her own research showing poor outcomes for children with significant psychiatric illness despite receiving conventional treatments for their conditions and Julia and I sort of discuss how she got into the field and also how she feels about the conventional treatment versus nutrients and by no means is Julia against medication and we talk about this but she certainly has a wealth of experience and knowledge in the provision of nutrients particularly in this space with children but also in post-traumatic stress disorder and nutrients in light of large-scale you know natural disasters such as the Christchurch earthquakes and also the floods in Calgary. For the last almost 15 years she has been investigating the role of micronutrients in the expression of mental illness with a specific focus on ADHD, bipolar disorder, anxiety and also as I just mentioned PTSD. So you can find her current research interests at www.mentalhealthandnutrition.co.nz and her research institute profile can be found under the Canterbury University website and I will link to both of the places including other ways to contact Julia in the show notes. Before we get on to the interview though, just a quick note that the recipe access for my website is now live, so I know those of you who've been wanting to get more ideas for food and also have access to sort of ask me any questions related to your own nutrition, but yet don't need a full-on meal plan, you can absolutely do that, and that's a great way to support the podcast as well. But also, Mondays Matter Spring Edition, the registrations for that opens up this Friday so keep an eye out in your inbox for that and if you don't currently have my email coming to your inbox every Monday morning go over to my website mickeywillardin.com and add your name to the little pop-up box there and your email there and you can then have access to my weekly emails. Now enjoy this conversation that I have with Professor Julia Rutledge. Awesome. Morena Julia, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay, Mickey. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. And obviously we've just, well, obvious to us, we've just had a bit of a chat about where you are right now, day seven of uh, quarantine. 
after you flying back into the country and that'll be something that that we will discuss a little bit more probably later on in the conversation Um, and I'm really excited to talk to you in general really about your book the premise for your book better brain yeah the better brain the better brain yes do you know what I had it in my brain up until the very point I had to say it (laughs) um and and your research in and around nutrients and the importance for mental health and psychological distress there you go the better brain and I've actually just spent the last week reading almost all of your book Mm -hmm. in the sauna in the sauna, yes, which actually is very good for overall health and well-being. You could probably mm-hmm. do with a little bit of sauna right now. That would be amazing. Oh, and a bath. I love a bath. <laughs> yeah. Um, but can we kick off, Julia, sort of just really broadly thinking or speaking about, in your book, you, you begin by sort of discussing the level of education that people in health professions get on the importance for nutrients in the brain. Mm-hmm. And... Let's sort of just even start a little bit further back. How long have we known that what we eat influences how we feel? Like how long has this knowledge sort of been around? Like what's your understanding? Um, From what I understand, we've known that for a very, very long time. And you see references to food all the way through our history. And, you know, it will pop up and come and go. But I mean, Hippocrates said, let medicine, you know, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. So it's... You know, he must have come up with that from for some good reason. That clearly, what you were eating can influence your physical and your mental health. And we knew about it in pioneering times when, like Mrs. Beaton, the book of Household Management, which is uh, you know a book in the UK, but I know that that's it's been relevant in New Zealand as well. Or there's pioneering books in the in North America that reference the importance of food uh, for good mental health specifically. And in fact, one of the books says that um, poor nutrition is a primary cause of insanity, so or something along that line. So it was it's certainly been known that we we need to feed our brain primarily in order to have good mental health. Yeah. So. How much training did you get in your undergrad, graduate, in and around the role that nutrients have for mental health? Zero, zero, absolutely none. And interestingly, now that I've I've taken over teaching abnormal psychology, which is a third year course at University of Canterbury, and so I've actually spent some time. I've I've taught into it before, but I'm coordinating it. So I I do all the front end of it and just sort of that background physiology and all of that. And there's a there's in these textbooks they have you know all this information about I don't know you know the different parts of the brain and you know what the amygdala do and what's the the central nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system all of that and. There is nothing in there about the importance of nutrition. So I would imagine that's true for all textbooks. That and there's nothing in there about the gut, which is curious that they don't review that. So so students aren't even being alerted to us thinking about the importance of food for good mental health. Hopefully that will change. But those are the textbooks that we start with, and I'm sure that that would be. You'd see the same thing in your high school, in your primary education, that it's just not a focus. And it's curious about how did that happen, that we don't even have any training 
in, in thinking about the importance of nutrition primarily for feeding our brain. We yeah. know about it as important for good cardiovascular health or for your bone health or for your, you know, growing up and being strong, but we don't talk about it as being, well, actually you need to eat because your brain is the hungriest organ. It might be only 2% of body weight, but it consumes 20 to 40% of the nutrients that we eat. So to not to ignore it is, has really been at our peril. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Is it in part because, and I've heard someone describe like the medical system before, the or the way it's you know you've got specialists, you've got ortho, you've got like orthopedics, you've got cardiovascular, oh sorry, um, uh, surgeons, you've got the the uh, uh, neurosurgeons and all the rest of it, and it's really compartmentalized. And do you think yeah. in part that could well be due to to that? Like this has never been that sort of cross connection sort of. Made. I think that definitely happens in everything is yeah. that we've become so specialized that sometimes we forget or we just we don't account for some pretty big elephants in the room. Yeah. And I think that certainly could have happened for psychology and psychiatry is that we've we're so focused on what's going on in the brain that we forget the connections that go up to the brain and how does the brain uh, you know how does the brain manage to operate how does it do it how does it have access to these neurotransmitters where do they come from how do we make those neurotransmitters so those questions don't seem to be um, asked or they're just assumed that they're just there and and not well how do they get made why why aren't we curious about how they're made how do we feed ourselves you know those those types of questions just don't seem to be um, being asked or at least not until more recently so Julia, how did you come across this line of inquiry? So what was your first introduction to it? Sure. So so with the basis of nutrition was not only not taught in my 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 PhD training as a clinical psychologist in, in at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada, but also not only was it not talked about, but if it was talked about, it was viewed as irrelevant. So so it was just it viewed as you really, as long as you eat okay, and that's, you know, what does it mean to eat okay? I've thought a lot about that, and I think we're getting a, a lot of the messages are wrong on that front too. But just sort of understanding the premise behind it, when I was doing my PhD at the University of Calgary under Bonnie Kaplan, who I co-wrote the book with, she was, she had done some research on nutrition. And um, in fact, she decided it was just way too flaky and way too difficult and had moved beyond that and was doing other work. But she was approached by some families in southern Alberta, Canada, probably because they knew she had done some nutrition research. And they had discovered that giving um, their family members a broad spectrum of vitamins and minerals could completely eliminate their psychiatric symptoms that had not been treated by conventional medicine. So these were people with serious psychiatric conditions like bipolar disorder, like psychosis, that they were claiming had were were successfully uh, treated with these nutrients, and the idea behind why they had done that came from their knowledge of what happens when animals get really irritable and start to you know when pigs start to bite each other and their tails or their ears they um, farmers know that the way to alleviate their irritability is by giving them a broad spectrum of micronutrients in their feed. So they simply applied the knowledge that they had as 
agricultural specialists to their children. So they made this connection between the behavior of the animals being not necessarily that dissimilar from the irritability that we see with people who have psychiatric problems. So they just that made that sort of leap to the human world and then decided to give it a go because at the end of the day, the trajectory was pretty grim for these children and these family members. They, you know, there was a large number of people in these families who had, who had committed suicide. So it wasn't like they were, they were looking at a good outcome with conventional treatment. And I think that's something that we, we need to have a much bigger con- public conversation about, which is that while we have these treatments that can certainly make massive changes for some people, the reality is and the data say a very different story in terms of a very large number of people are not getting well enough with these treatments. So we need to also take that into account when we are exploring new ideas. Not that this is a new idea, but when we are trying to open up to having more tools in the toolbox, we need to acknowledge that the current treatments are only so successful. Yeah, I found it really interesting in your book, you described that you were looking at, you conducted research looking at people on antidepressants and whilst everyone was taking the medication, you had like, was it 70% of people actually weren't feeling any better or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, So, and that was, that was just a coincidental finding. That was, that was based on doing a study with some researchers at University of Otago, where we were looking at the genetics of whether or not you could identify those people who are going to have more severe side effects with antidepressants versus those who didn't. So as a part of that collection of those data, they also looked at uh, at psychological functioning, psychological health. And those data were showing these that many, many of them were still in the severe range and, you know, or in, you know, in a clinical range for their depression. And so you do have to kind of stop and go and look at this and go, if I get a treatment, like if I had a, uh, an infection and, and antibiotics only worked for 40% of people, wouldn't we be looking for other ways to treat an infection? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, whereas with mental health, we accept that it's okay that when you get the treatment, you're still unwell. Mm. And I think people themselves must, you know, when they, they're given in a, a, one of these medications and that they don't respond, I suspect they, per, they internalize it and personalize it. And maybe they think to themselves, well, I'm so broken that not even the medications can help me. Yeah. I don't know what <laughs> happens because they keep taking them. You've talked in your in other podcasts and potentially, and I'm trying to remember whether I read it in your book, and I'm sure that I did, about the idea of publication bias. And so, you know, when yeah. we look at research in and around medications, a lot of the time the research that is published are though only those studies which show a favorable sort of outcome. So yeah, yeah that's I feel like... That problem. Yeah, that's, it may have been mentioned in the book, but I've, I've published on that topic too. So yeah. Um, yeah, and the other the other thing I think about as well is that when you're told by your doctor that this is an this is a medication that is going to help you, and you sub or, or yeah, and you subsequently 
you know, you don't feel that much better. It's, it is almost sort of expected. It's like, oh, well, I'm taking antidepressants. So you know, yeah, I need to be yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I it's know. just part and parcel of it. And I wonder, you know, what is a measure of success? Is success just that you take your medication every day? Yeah. Because then... I think that's something we need to be seriously questioning mm. is going, what is success? And for me, I think success is when you're in remission and you're yeah. in a better place and that you are no longer plagued by these symptoms. I mean, sure, we all have... I, we, I can't... I, I don't even have the, the plan that we should eliminate anxiety or sadness or, um, you know, having fear or stress. Those are natural, normal parts of life. And they are they are often indicators that we need to be uh, maybe changing our environment or addressing things that are going on for us. Yeah. But to have that in a chronic state, you know, regardless of what is going on in your environment, even if everything is okay in your environment and you're still feeling sad and you're still feeling low and and um, depressed and um, worthless and hopeless about your future, that's the, those are the times of states that we're trying to see whether or not we can help people um, and alleviate that, that level of suffering. But we can't allevi- alleviate all suffering. No. Um, that is still, it, and they are important. It is important to have some anxiety when you go into an environment that may actually be harmful to you. We need to be kind of hyper vigilant of, well, what's going, you know, is there something in this environment that I need to be aware of? So we can't, we don't want to eliminate that entirely, but we certainly do want to eliminate that the, the severity when it's unnecessary or it's not, you know, it doesn't have that sort of, uh, you know, have some kind of a function in your environment. Yeah. Yeah, and certainly um, from your book and what I know of you as well is it's not that you are absolutely against treatment, but it is the not appropriate use of treatment to then, you know, look at sort of bigger picture, sort of broader, what people yeah. might be able to change to help with them. Well, it's also that we were so quick to put people on the medications. That's what concerns me is that 17% of the adult population in New Zealand is on an antidepressant. So that's a fairly, you know, a pretty staggering number of people. Do they all have serotonin deficiency or are they, you know, could they... Could their suffering be alleviated by other methods first that don't carry the same level of side effects and withdrawal problems? So it's if antidepressants were did not come with a with um, uh, some some downsides to them that they you know maybe they work for some people but they don't work for others. I mean that's all treatments are like that. We can never have a find a treatment that's going to cure everybody. But if antidepressants didn't have that negative side to them, then I guess it's okay to put 17% of the population on them. But the fact that so many people who get on them struggle to then come off of them and that new symptoms emerge when they do try to come off of them, then we kind of have to question whether or not that's the w- the best way forward is the frontline form of treatment. Uh, you know, and, and you know, there's a push now for more psychotherapy as maybe that could be done first. But let's be honest about it. We don't have enough psychotherapists, psychologists, health professionals to treat everybody who has mental distress in our community. Nor should we necessarily be aiming for that because there could be other ways that we can all empower ourselves to do things that in in itself will get us to a better place. Yeah. You know, we shouldn't be so dependent on having to see a professional in order to feel better. So I think we need to you know, in some cases, yes, that might be necessary. But does it 20% of the population need that? 
or even more. Um, you know, we all, I think, you know, it's probably 20% just represents those who sort of hit a marker, but, you know, everybody suffers. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, of course, you've got the people who just don't go to the doctor and, and would never be in a position where they could be diagnosed with something which would then require medication as well, right? Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned that Bonnie was approached by these families mm-hmm. yes. and then okay. and you were your PA, you were her PhD student or you'd just, you'd I finished with her PhD. and kind of yeah. gone on. So Yeah, sorry. Yes, I did. For, we, we, we got sidetracked. Yeah, no, no, it's so, good. Um, so yes, I was. I heard about these families, and um, Bonnie decided uh, to run some small clinical trials in the late 1990s when I started to do my postdoc. Um, I'd moved on and moved to, to Toronto at that point. I was at the, I was at the hospital for sick children, and and her data that were published in really good journals in 2001, 2002, 2004, they uh, they showed people with bipolar disorder showing a reduction in their symptoms alongside a reduction in medications, which we should all be celebrating and and want to explore further. But unfortunately, she um, ended up having her a, a randomized control trial on bipolar disorder being shut down by Health Canada. For five years, um, they prevented the sale of the nutrients in Canada. They, you know, there was there was just a really a heavy hit on trying to conduct this research, such that she couldn't do it. So she came to New Zealand in two thousand and three and presented her preliminary data. And it is pre- it was preliminary. It wasn't it wasn't a control trial, but it was it was data that should people should pay attention to go and say, oh, this is something we really should be studying uh, further. And it hasn't really picked, it was never picked up. And for me, I I looked at that. And by then, you know, I was no longer quite the naive graduate student who thinks that all treatments help all people. And that in fact, many people continue to do really poorly on even when they receive the best conventional treatments. So as a scientist, as a researcher, at that point I was at the university, I'd started my position, academic position at the University of Canterbury, I thought, well, what do you have to lose? Either we learn that uh, these nutrients, even as wacky as an idea it might seem to me at the time, might, um, you know, we, we might learn that they don't work. Well, that's an important thing to establish. But if they do work, then that's something that you know, both the public and governments should be interested in in learning about. Mm, for sure. And I'm just thinking about the type of training that you got and the type of the physiology and the, the, the you know, your understanding of how nutrients affected the brain or the pathways, like that things like nutrients acting as messengers in the brain to send like signals to help produce neurotransmitters. Did you just not learn that or was it so sort of compartmentalized that it was almost, I don't know, like how, how is it yeah. possible that it was seemed so wacky, I suppose? Yeah, it, it wasn't. So I did, a, I did an undergraduate in neurobiology. So I thought, you know, I was getting an education on neurons <laughs> and, and so and the, and at the cellular level. So I, you know, I, I should go back to all those notes. That was in 1988 that I started that undergraduate degree in 1988 to ni- 1992. But um, I did a lot of neuroanatomy and, and just understanding how these things work. And it just wasn't, uh, it certainly wasn't on my radar. It should have, you know, it's, if, and if 
if it was, I think I should remember that. Yeah. But it wasn't. It wasn't talked about. And again, when you think about even when I present the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle, which is something that all medical students are taught about, um, is you know probably in in first year medical school. I would ask them. Did you know that in order for all of those chemical reactions to occur to make ATP, which is so important for energy production and energy, you know, providing the body with energy, did you know that along the way there's these cofactors and they're all minerals and vitamins? And I'm guessing they don't know that because it's not highlighted. So now I show the citric acid cycle and I say, look at what's, you know, look at all these nutrients along the way that are required. And that's, I think, what we're bringing to the public and to the education is highlighting something that has previously been overlooked. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And Julia, you say that Bonnie's research was shut down and mm-hmm. essentially sort of ignored. Who shuts it down? Like what's Health what's, Canada, the health- equivalent of Pharmac. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. At that government level. Yes. Yeah. And interesting because in your book you do mention the clinical practice guidelines group yeah. and the potential uh, conflict of interest that occurs. Do you want to just sort of describe the, oh. you know, how funding sort of works and, and, and how that could influence some of these decisions? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it Yes, sure. I can certainly do that. <laughs> um, so, up in, for the most part, if you were running a clinical trial on a drug, an antidepressant, most clinical trials on antidepressants are conducted directly by the pharmaceutical industry that is interest has a, a vested interest in that drug working, and that's been sort of an accepted model that for a long time, people didn't even have to declare that that's where the funding came from. But when they real, when, when researchers have uncovered that that seems to lead ultimately to a bias in your reporting, that's now become forefront. And you do need to declare where all your funding comes from and the pharma, different pharmaceutical companies that may fund your research. So that's a fairly sort of typical model. And so that, and that it therefore means that most, many, many people who are in psychiatry in particular receive funding from, meta, from these pharmaceutical industry. And definitely people who have been involved in the development of the, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM, which is the manual for psychiatric disorders, you, you can see that many of them have these conflicts of interest. And so that does that influence how we describe or de, you know define psychiatric disorders? You do have to wonder whether or not, because if you have a disorder that then the implications are that you're going to have a drug that's going to treat that disorder, then and if you get funding from those companies that make those drugs, then you kind of are in a position where you might want to encourage these disorders to be you know, identified, if that makes any sense. So um, the same thing then goes with the clinical guidelines, and which is where, where, where pe- people get together as a group and come up with what is the best way forward in terms of the treatment for different psychiatric problems. So then you, when you look at then if they have conflicts of interest, the fact that they do have conflicts of interest, does that influence they will recommend medications, but does it also influence them to want to suppress 
the knowledge on other alternative treatments. We don't know what impact that has, but I certainly know that people who have a really strong medical model focus are oftentimes, sadly, anti-nutrients. Yeah. They are, and they are actively, sadly, anti-nutrient to the point where I get really, like I get emails from the public every day, but I do get these emails from people who say, I heard about your nutrients um, and I talked to my GP about them and my GP told me there was no evidence whatsoever for it. And I've heard that many, many, many times. So I think, why would the GP say that? When we have tons of evidence, it means they're choosing to ignore the evidence that exists. They're not interested. It doesn't fit with their worldview. I don't want to be negative about them. They're, they are trying to do the best for their patients. And they probably think they're doing the best for their patients by saying, just to, you know, ignore that. There's no reason, you know, nutrients can't possibly help you with a serious psychiatric condition. I, I don't think they're, they're intending to do harm, but they are doing harm when they ignore the evidence base. Okay. Julia, this is a bit of a tangent, but is absolutely related as well. Is, is what you're describing there what happened with your TED Talk when your TED Talk was mm-hmm. flagged as, as kind of containing um, misinformation? So, yeah. Yeah. Can you kind of describe well, that? Well, I, I don't know. It, it, they, Ted would never um, share with me the source of the complaint. So I don't know if it was somebody from the medical community. I don't know if it was, you know, somebody from the public. I don't know if it was a farm, you know, somebody from the pharma, big pharma. I don't know. But what I do know is that that TEDx talk, my TEDx talk was entirely fact-checked based. There was nothing in there that was incorrect, made up, um, who who knows, you know, they, they were out to, um, to scar me and to, you know, to suggest that I was less of a scientist than, 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 than I, I suppose I put myself out to be a scientist. I'm a professor of psychology. I've, you know, I've gone through promotion. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've gained enough, um, a reputation to be able to get to that point in my career. So for them to suggest initially that there was no evidence. They didn't even bother looking. They didn't even bother to look at the studies. And by the time that flag came out, we even had we had even more research and more evidence. So in the end, the only thing they could criticize me for on that talk, and this was based on a long extended dialogue with them, uh, was they could say that I simplified legitimate studies. And so they had to, that was eventually the reason for the flag was that I simple, oversimplified legitimate studies. Who else gets that kind of a flag? Yeah, that is Everybody ridiculous. Everybody oversimplifies in an 18-minute talk. And an 18-minute talk for the public. Like, one of the skills of being someone who can translate science into stuff that other people can kind of pick up and understand is the ability to simplify it so we do understand it. Exactly. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's that's they would they refused to take the flag off. Absolutely refused, even though I pointed out 
many, many, many TED talks that were out there that should then therefore also have a flag on them and they didn't. So uh, it, it didn't help. I mean, at the end of the day, I had to, I just had to accept that that was, this was part of the world that I live in when it comes to challenging the status quo, trying to suggest that there's other ways forward, you're unpopular. And, and that, comes with the territory. And it surprised me that this is what comes with the territory, because all I was ever doing was being the critic and conscience of society and looking to see whether or not there was any legitimacy to the claim that nutrients could help people struggling with mental health disorders. You'd think I should be celebrated and that people would be like, yay, somebody's actually wanting to study this. And instead, uh, every attempt was made to either stop me from doing this research which has also happened, stop me from publishing the research, which has also happened, or to try to um, smear me in some way in a, in a public campaign like that. Yeah. And did you get, or do you continue to get pushback from colleagues, from um, other health professionals that, that you need to deal with sort of on a regular basis, particularly after you've, you've, pub- you've published your book or? Um, the book, uh, you know, interestingly, not, I, you know, try to, try to keep my eye on what, my, you know, if there is any negative publicity, there are some negative reviews on Amazon that just say that we are in the, you know, that we're just friends of people who make these nutrients, yeah. which is completely in, inaccurate and, and wrong, um, that we are profiting from this, which is also wrong, is that I, I'm, I'm, we have never received any funding. You were raising funding issue earlier. We have never received funding from the companies that make the products. And that has been from the get-go, from day one, never received any funding. I don't, if the, if the people sell the nutrients, I don't get any money from it. I'm not out here to even sell specific formulas. I'm just here to sell the idea that nutrition is relevant to the brain. And the only way you can do that really in a scientific way is by doing randomized controlled trials with those nutrients in a capsule. Diet interventions are problematic and that you can't ever do them blinded. People know when they've been randomized to broccoli that you can't hide it. So but with capsules, you can give the nutrients in a pill form, compare it to placebo, and then determine whether or not it's superior to placebo. So that's how drug trials are done. And so then if we find that the nutrients are more effective than placebo, then really what that's saying is that for whatever reason, the people who were consuming them are not adequately nourished from their food alone. And it also, though, puts nutrition on the map as being relevant to brain health. You can't argue with that. So, But the only way you can study that is with a formula. Somebody has to encapsulate it. And so you've got to have somebody who's willing to do that. I'm not a, I, I don't do that. I'm not, it's not my area of expertise. I'm a psychologist. I'm not somebody who manufactures, um, you know, vitamin and mineral formulas. So you, you have to go with a company. And going with the company, the families in Southern Alberta, Canada, who at the end of the day, were only trying to do the best for their families, seemed, seemed like a, you know, a, you know, good company to provide us with the product and the matching placebo. Yeah. So Julia, on that then, you've begun your research here um, in New Zealand using the nutraceuticals that were provided by the families. Can you describe 
what you did, what you found just in those, yeah, yeah. in your initial studies. Okay. So, well, I'll summarize my 10 years of research in a few minutes. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I mean, we initially started with, you know, in science, you never start with a randomized control trial. You have case studies and mm. initial case studies were really intriguing and fascinating. And they did make me pay attention because there were these people who were intractable in terms of their no change in their very little change in their symptoms based on conventional treatments, but then showing huge dramatic changes in a very short period of time with nutrients. It doesn't happen with everybody. And I need to always underscore that is that not everyone gets better with this, but I've seen some really remarkable dramatic changes in many, many people over the years such that it's clearly having a positive effect for some people. So then we did open label trials, which is where you just expose 10 to 15 people to the nutrients and you see what happens because there's, if, it, if you don't see any benefit in a small little trial, again, no point in, in investing in a much larger trial. So then we, we found massive changes in people with ADHD who were emotionally dysregulated. So then I followed up with a randomized control trial, placebo controlled with adults with ADHD and found benefit in some areas, not all, but overall the sort of the the finding that we saw in that first randomized control trial continues in all the other trials that we've done. And that is that it's not specific to any disorder. The nutrients, when they work, they, it's like they're, it's like a metabolic tune-up. It seems to be having a positive effect on, on just overall brain activity, which makes sense when you think about the biochemistry and what the nutrients are doing. They're not tar specific to just serotonin uh, transmitters, neurotransmitters, or just dopamine, they're going to have a benefit across the board, especially in people who, for whatever reason, may need more nutrients than what they're getting out of their food. Maybe, you know, they just have a greater need for them than the average individual. We're not quite sure why, but we know that by giving additional nutrients for some people, you get the benefit in, say, concentration, mood, uh, stability, uh, calmer, sleeping better, less need for alcohol, cigarettes. We get this kind of broad view, which means that the effect on any one symptom may be, you know, small, but collectively, that's a big effect yeah. when you see that across all of those different areas. And that's why when we, the number one area we see the benefit is an overall functioning, that they just seem to be in a better place. They can cope better. They're more resilient. Um, they're calmer. They're less dysregulated. They're not snapping as much. They're less irritable. Yeah. And so then that in turn, does that then mean they can concentrate better? They're less impulsive maybe less hyperactive, calmer in themselves. And those effects may come a little bit later. And in fact, our studies over one year do suggest that, that the initial short-term effects are in emotional dysregulation, you know, in, in, uh, improving emotional dysregulation, but longer term, we see benefits across the, more stronger benefits across the board. So, um, so those initial trials then were replicated uh, in children with ADHD, and um, then we've also, and that's now there's a third replication that's coming out of the States any day now that I can't talk about, but, you know, just watch out for it um, with children with ADHD who are dysregulated. There are also studies, though, from other research centers on autism that are, those ones have been done that are placebo controlled as well. There's a number of different studies that have been done in prisons looking at aggression and again, seeing reduction in the number of incidents within a prison uh, set setting, reduction in the level of um, violent incidents, for example. So there's those studies. We've also, though, I then diverted, not diverted, but um, I 
got interested in stress resilience as a consequence of living in Christchurch at the time of the earthquakes. So we've done studies on that. We've done studies on PMS. Um, showing the benefit of nutrients to reduce symptoms associated with PMS. We've looked at addiction uh, in terms of smoking cessation and helping people quit smoking. Um, yeah, I'm kind so of busy. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah there's, and then a lot of like little trials, like little, yeah. you know, smaller types of on-off, on-off types of trials just to see whether or not symptoms come and go as you're on and off the nutrients. So lots of different experimental designs haven't just stayed with randomized control trials yeah. to really try to have that broad array of different types of experimental designs, which is really important in science that you don't just focus on one type of design. You need yeah. to have that replication across different types of robust designs. Yeah. And then we've looked at mechanisms of action, which has been exciting too, like collaborating with geneticists and um, people who are, have expertise in fMRI, for example, or microbiome. And we've been trying to better understand when the micronutrients work, what is it that's changing biologically? So pretty broad. Yeah. yeah and it's super interesting as well. And what I uh, so a couple of things with regards to the randomized controlled trials where obviously you were just giving a nutrient well the the broad spectrum nutrient you're not changing their diet did you collect any dietary data and I will preface or I will caveat that by saying that it is such an inexact science and you know yeah. of what value would you even get from it given that humans are not perfect you know, and they, don't know the, yeah. and they don't always tell the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, do you think that some of the effects are because the people that are that are sort of involved in the trials, their diets are suboptimal, or do yeah. you even know that? Well, we do know that, and diet doesn't seem to predict response, which okay. which is interesting. Um, but then I don't know if we've really done a good job of measuring diet, as you allude to. It's not simple. Yeah. So we measured it very crudely. I'll be honest about that. Um, I have done some really detailed uh, dietary evaluations for some of the studies. Um, actually, I think only for one study with the ADHD study where we did the food frequency questionnaire and we looked at, you know, that, and that really does go into a lot of detail. But for the most part, we use just a few questions around, you know, vegetable intake, fruit intake, number of takeaways, do they eat breakfast, um, the sort of, sort of broad stroke look at their dietary patterns. And, and the usefulness of that is that we can then at least say, were there any overall differences in the dietary patterns of the two groups? Because what you don't want to have happen is that you randomize, you happen to just randomize all of those who are, say, on micronutrients also had a bad, a poor diet relative to those on the, in the control group. So you just want to make sure that there's no group difference. So we establish that there's no, doesn't, there's no overall group difference between them. And that's not surprising because randomization is supposed to have that effect is that you have randomization, that you have an equivalency in age, that you have equivalency in terms of their socioeconomic status. We're just trying to step, make sure that there was no major hit on differences in their dietary habits. But we wanted to, we didn't want to focus on diet. Um, and that's important that if you do too many questionnaires on diet, then people are going to be thinking about their diet and then they might change their diet. And so we didn't want people changing their diet. So we didn't talk about diet in any big way. So we we wanted them to come to the conclusion that diet was a, was important as opposed to us telling them and or or them 
sort of figuring that out based on the, uh, an overemphasis on diet. So it was just a little part of the studies. And we could also then establish whether or not they changed their diet in any sort of big way during the trial, because you don't want people to change during the trial. No. Humans always do. They're, that makes it very difficult as a researcher is that they do tend to change things like they get divorced in the middle of a trial or they go on holiday or, you know, the, you know, earthquakes happen in middle of trials, all kinds of things happen in middle of trials, but you always think, you know, you're hoping the randomization process eliminates that variability. Yeah. And it's, I found it really interesting as well, what you described with the acute change in that emotional regulation in the short, yeah, in the short term, obviously acute, but then later on you noticed an overall sort of change in the response to the nutrients. And and in your book you talk about the triage theory, which I've heard Bruce Ames talk yeah. about, and mm-hmm. I, I absolutely love that. Can you sort of describe, just for people who aren't familiar, um, do you, well, first of all, my first question is, do you think it is in part because of the, the varying roles that nutrients have over time that we don't often think about? We often think we have the set amount of nutrient we need because it does this one thing versus the multiple roles that nutrients play in the body and how that might change. Do you think that's related? Um, Did that even make sense? I don't know if that makes sense to me, but I guess what it makes me think of is that I think our nutritional our nutritional needs vary over time. If that's what you're Mm. thinking of is that, you know, if I'm having, you know, things are pretty stable in my life, then I may not, my nutritional needs may be, and I'm not sick and I'm not injured or I'm, you know, I'm not faced with multiple stressors, then maybe my nutrition, I can get away with a more compromised diet, but then put me into an environment where I am being, you know, multiple stressors are coming from all around me, or that I'm also kind of run down and I'm more susceptible to infection, then I think our nutritional needs are higher. And that's sort of the, I think what the triage theory does for me um, it really highlights that our bodies are really clever and that they are going to, you know, it's, we're going to divert the nutrition that it does exist, which is in limited supply always, to the place that it's needed the most. And the place that it's always going to be needed the most is going to be the fight flight response. And that's the, the idea that's behind that triage theory is that when you're under incredible stress or you're, you're fearing survive, like survival is at stake then your nutritional resources are going to be prioritized to go towards supporting that system at the expense of longer term functions like your sleep, like your concentration, like regulation of mood. So I guess that's how what I think about is that we don't have we have a finite supply and it's going to get diverted to one place over another. Like yeah. an emergency room where the yeah. where the motor vehicle accident is always going to take um the precedence over someone with a sprained ankle so yeah, our sure. bodies do the same thing and over time once that sort of that fight and flight issue has sort of been recalibrated a little bit and you're feeling better than that the additional nutrients can then go towards those the other roles that it sort of plays in the body yeah. I think I don't think I I said that in the way that that I was thinking about it in my head but I feel like we're saying the same thing okay. that the available the availability of those nutrients is now so much more than what it was initially that 
over time that the benefits aren't just in the short term and they aren't just for that particular kind of emotional regulation kind of longer term you're going to start seeing someone just feeling a lot better in general Right. And, but I also sort of couple that with the fact that when we are under a lot of stress, we yeah. tend to reach out for foods that are, are micronutrient depleted and, yeah. and are, are likely laden with sugar. And that will give us a good, nice, positive hit in a short term, but are going to do nothing good for us in terms of helping support us in the long term. So we do make some really bad food choices. And then we're, it's also supported by the environment. You know, I can think back to when the earthquakes happened and there was, you know, we were, we were displaced as a family. We were no longer in our kitchen. So we were in a, we were staying in a house on campus that had a really crappy kitchen. So we weren't cooking to the same level that we had been previously. You're making poor food choices under that level of stress, it's less available. The food that's been given out in the shelters was white bread, um, you know, packaged ultra-processed foods that store really well. They weren't giving out a lot of fruit and vegetables, so they're not giving you those good hits on that nutrient-dense food. So it's compounded by the foods that are being provided to you at a time when you actually need more micronutrients to support your brain. Do you know what? I really, I have such a conundrum in my head about comments like that and because I feel exactly the same. But then the, the flip side argument is, 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 and not in that situation, but I think about people who are um, like homeless people who are given food or children are given lunches and they're made, and, and predominantly they are foods which are actually micronutrient poor. They have calories, but they don't actually provide the nutrition. Yeah. And so the argument that I often, like I, I don't often say it out loud because I get so much backlash and I'm like, yeah, calories definitely important but those micronutrients are also important so so I always um, hesitate to to sort of suggest that better food choices for those people for people in that situation would be far more beneficial to them because you know the the, the other argument is well it's better than nothing yeah you know like I don't know if you ever yeah. have well, those thoughts it, as oh, well I think about it all the time with respect to food packaging as you well know um, when we did the MOOC together and that we are trying to educate on the you know the micronutrient density of whole foods versus the micronutrient density of ultra processed food so Definitely, I've thought a lot more about it, and and I do speak more about it. I know you know that I'm quite hesitant about talking about it as a psychologist and not as a nutritionist, but I'm gaining more confidence because I think at the end of the day, I'm not saying anything that really isn't completely obvious, that it should, we ever, should be obvious to everybody, which is that let's look at those food packages, ultra-processed food packages, and interestingly, the the nutritional facts that they have to put on those food packages are entirely focused on the macronutrient content, yes. the fats, the set, you know, it doesn't have saturated fats. Does it have sodium? Does it have, um, uh, carbohydrates in there? What's the energy level? So it's all focused on that. And then they might list a, a couple, like three or four micronutrients. You might see, I don't know, maybe, maybe zinc or vitamin D levels or vitamin C levels. 
but they won't they won't list the entire array of the 30 essential nutrients that we're supposed to be consuming you know about 15 vitamins and about 15 minerals they aren't all listed and so if they were for, forced to list that there would be a lot of zeros because they're not they're only and if they fortify they only fortify in a few nutrients it's like you know at best you might have a few of the b vitamins you might have a bit of zinc you might have a bit of iron so you're not fortifying in the full array and those foods are just depleted in those micronutrients relative to whole foods so i don't know i think that that kind of information I, I feel pretty confident about talking about now. And I think we need to be moving the conversation away from the calories that, yes, that's important. But we've also learned that a calorie in, calorie out is an outdated concept, that not every calorie is equivalent. So I think that we need to be also now, and but the, the focus on calories and on macronutrients has been at the expense of those micronutrients. And so people think they're eating a really well, a, a well-balanced diet if they get their fats, carbs, and proteins balanced, but they're not even have on their radar the micronutrient content. So we fooled the public really beautifully. Yeah. And I, um, interestingly, you would have seen, I'm sure, over the last couple of days that uh, Nestle published a report in how they were they could not believe that 66% of their products did not meet their own internal health rating or the sort of public health rating. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this had just, has been all over Twitter and, um, and, and on the news. So the news story really was that Nestle was really surprised that they are not this nutrition, wellness and health company that they've said that they are. <laughs> and one, I'm just flummoxed that they're so surprised mm -hmm. and that everyone else seems to be surprised. Mm -hmm. And two, that whole positioning of Nestle as being a nutrition, health and wellness like company is just like mind boggling to me that anyone would think that they were yeah. and that they could fool themselves. And, you know, and I feel like in part that fortification process that you, you, or the fortification you just described, which is the addition of nutrients to foods that would, might've had them at one, um, at one point in time, but have been stripped mm -hmm. and then put back in. Like that is almost sort of a bit of a, it's almost like pulling the wool. Like people are still eating these ultra processed food that could impact negatively on other things like their blood sugar regulation, mm. which could also cause additional inflammation and oxidative yeah. stress and contribute to you know psychological distress. Yeah. But they might be getting a level of B vitamins or something because the companies put it back yeah, in. I know, I know. And they're only yeah. getting a few, as we know. They're not getting the full array. And so what effect does that have in terms of in causing, creating imbalances and deficiencies? So, yeah. it's, but it's just, in, you know, the, the food industry, like Big Pharma, is incredibly powerful. And, um, and you know, they, as you know, they've come out with the, the, the star rating system. That was, you know, I don't know the full history of that, but I assume that was something like the Ministry of Health developed those star ratings perhaps yeah. in conjunction and in collaboration with industry. And Australia. So, yeah, yes, it's Australia. Australia. Yeah. yeah, but the yeah. down, like, who, I mean, doesn't really matter who developed them. When I look at them, and maybe I'm just naive and I'm missing the point, but as an external person, like as someone who's not a dietitian and not a nutritionist, looking at the star rating system, what hit me immediately was, this is all about what's not in the food. 
Why don't they care yeah. about what's in the food? There's only one, it seems like there's only one designation for what's in the food and it could be just one nutrient. And so we're, we're continuing to, um, to encourage people to think about the food in terms of it's, again, it's low, you know, as long as it's low in energy, low in saturated fats, low in sodium, low in your sugars, did I get them all? You're, you're fine to go. You're good to go. Good to eat it. Yeah, pretty much. And I think, and you know, and here you are, you know, clearly you're, you're, you're like a professor. So if anyone should be able to figure out what a health star rating sort of means, you would think that you would be able to. And how is the general public then able to sort of figure out what the actual underlying meaning of the health star rating, even if it is explained in a document on a website somewhere on the internet, mm -hmm. how you're supposed to actually use the health star rating? Well, I mean, if you're, yeah, exactly. So if you're just a naive member of the public, you'd look at that and go, oh, this has got four stars. Great. That sounds really good. I'll eat it. What they don't know is that a cardboard box would get four stars too. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. Maybe and it I, is. Maybe that's actually what it is. Is that the star rating is associated with the actual thing that it's attached to, as opposed to what's inside? <laughs> um, maybe. But but I mean, some things are. I mean, in, uh, you know, in all fairness, there are some things that have got star ratings that are not ultra processed. We know that. Of course. And so that. That does, of course, there's some things that are perfectly fine to eat. And in fact, some of them end up with very low star ratings. And yet I would much prefer to eat them over something that I've got a four and a half star rating. And what you don't know is that, and, that, and I don't know how this is, seems a bit convol convoluted and maybe overly complicated, but from what I understand, the star ratings are only, are all, always for one type of food. So they're all rated, yeah. you know, all cereals are rated. But so a four star rating on a cereal doesn't necessarily translate to a four star rating on a yogurt. Yeah, it it pretty much they're they're comparing like products, and that's another yes. thing that people won't understand. They'll be looking yeah. at something and seeing that that has four stars. Say a muesli bar has four stars, but these nuts have two stars. So that muesli bar must be a better choice than the nuts. Exactly. Whereas, and that took fact, me a while, a while to figure that mm, one out. It was like, oh, why would they do what that? that means. Yeah, and, and you know, and it's really the whole food guidance system thing is really interesting because yes, we do need some general guidelines as to you know how the population would ideally eat, but then it's just it's like your TED talk. It's just difficult to simplify into a message that people understand. Yeah, yeah. you know, that's right. That's right. Should it be that hard? And I know that your research looks at that broad spectrum of the micronutrients that we need but there has been research done in just single nutrients and their impact on sort yeah. of brain and behavior and, and things like that and you you also justified why you you use those micronutrients as opposed to just one nutrient do you think it's valuable to know how one nutrient might affect the brain or do you think it is actually just more useful to know yeah. in general? I think there are some instances where that might be useful if you're trying to better understand what one nutrient does, then you'd manipulate only that one variable. So there could be instances where that might be quite interesting. And so I wouldn't say that we shouldn't ever do that type of research. But if we're thinking about it in the context of trying to treat a serious psychiatric disorder or any serious serious health illness for that point. Um, I, to me, it just doesn't seem like the most logical way to get the biggest impact 
by just giving one nutrient. And we know that already from the research is that it's pretty modest. And for many of it, there's no effect whatsoever. And But unfortunately, that research on single nutrient research meant they just kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater and said, okay, nutrients, therefore, are not an effective way to try to address really serious psychiatric problems. When in fact, maybe the approach just didn't make any physiological sense in terms of supporting the biochemical pathways that are involved in the expression of psychiatric problem. And so there, I think there's always a place for it. And it has a place in science in that I think we, you know, we can always look at things and go, well, that was really like, why did they do that? That's so, what, is, what a silly thing to do. But that's how science evolves and how we end up with new ideas and, and trying out new things is that some things didn't work and that has to be okay. We have to accept that that's okay to sometimes find things don't work. And it might be that we find that micronutrients don't always work with every condition or that there are going to be limitating Limit, limiting factors. Um, and that's okay. It's, I think we should be open to just understand what do the data tell us and to know that that, that informs our clinical decisions. And in some cases, it might be that it's not the route to go down. Mm. You know, so yeah, and I agree. I agree with you as well. It's. I, I remember seeing a um a paper come out last year saying omega threes are not helpful for any. And then it yeah. sort of was uncovered there was this one trial where omega threes was not useful for. Yeah. I think it was maybe it was cardiovascular. Disease. Yeah. I, it was one condition, you yeah. know. And so yeah, no, I I appreciate what you're saying. Um, Julia, you mentioned ADHD and the importance of micronutrients there. I get a lot of parents coming to me who are distressed by the fact that their children don't eat well. In your role and with your research, like, do you have any, like, what kind of advice can you offer parents with regards to how their children eat? Like, because obviously it's important from a growth and a development perspective, like, should they be worried? Is it, yeah, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that. I bet you have a better answer, to be honest, as a nutritionist. Um, and uh, But I think it, you know, I'm probably not very helpful at the individual level, which is probably why I became a scientist. Uh, and um, in that I look, at, I hear those stories and I go, Oh, but our environment is like, if our environment, our food environment was just different, then those kids yeah. wouldn't have those choices. And then therefore this wouldn't be a problem for that individual mother, but that doesn't happen that help that individual parent who comes to see you, who's kind of like, why does my kid just want to eat crap food all the time? And I can't seem to be able to get them to eat other foods. I think that that's, a, I mean, it, it's going to be a, a slow dialogue and a slow change that you're not going to be able to change that child's taste patterns overnight. And that in fact, it, it they were probably created potentially from in utero, you know, food preferences may well have started there. So it does, it does, it suggests to me the bigger picture of needing to change the other things first, but it, that doesn't help the situation. So then it would be about, wouldn't it be just about um, just the slow changes? Are there some things, you know, just some things that we can get them to eat and sort of just slowly uh, introduce the foods that are potentially more nutrient dense and then just overall reduce the intake of those other foods because you just, there's only so much you can eat. Is that a possible pathway forward? Is it that the nutrients, I mean, one thing that we've observed with the nutrients and people we get a lot of those types of kids in our studies, 
but we're not there to try to change their diet. But one yeah. thing that we did notice, and we've heard over and over again, is that when the children do well on the nutrients, then they do tend to change their food preferences. And so they are a little bit more open to eating other types of foods. So is that potentially the way forward for some of those kids who are just absolutely refusing and the parents don't need to always engage in those battles because that's exhausting? Is it possible they could start with the supplementation first and then move towards uh, you know, eating, you know, seeing if we can introduce uh, new foods that have got those nutrients in them Yeah, as another way and forward. But you, what you raise is a, is a really, really difficult, challenging thing for parents. And I, you know, I, I appreciate that it's not something that's going to have a magic bullet. Yeah. And, and I guess the reason I ask is because I know that people will want, will want, would have wanted to have known sort of your take on it. Is there any reason why any parent shouldn't give their children a, a micronutrient supplement? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's obviously some, uh, some metabolic reasons why you might not want to do that. And that would be things like having hemochromatosis, like ha not being able to uh, metabolize iron very well, or having Wilson's disease, which is incredibly rare, but that's where you can't metabolize copper very well. And so there's a few other uh, genetic uh, reasons why you wouldn't want to supplement with some specific nutrients. Outside of that, medications is another um, challenge. Is that, and we talk a lot about that in the book. Is the is this very well observed clinical observation of interactions between medications and nutrients? And it's not that you can't take the nutrients alongside medications. It just needs to be done with a prescriber. Um, who is willing to engage in the idea that when you take in nutrients at the levels that we've been giving them in our clinical trials, that you um, uh, that you you may need to reduce the dose of the medication. It's not something that I do. All of the, our studies are done with people who are unmedicated, but it's just something to be aware of that there are these complicated interactions that can occur. It doesn't occur with a gummy bear because those nutrient levels are so low that it's, you're not going to have that effect. But when you're giving the nutrients at the levels that we give in our clinical trials, that's when you're going to start to potentially see those effects. So, for example, that might be relevant with stimulants um, that many kids may be on. Um, maybe less of an issue with antidepressants because hopefully they're not, you, you won't encounter that as frequently but that would be relevant to adults. Yeah, for sure. And I do know that in your book, you've got, um, yeah, as you say, like information, not just on that contraindication, but also information on for adults, if you are on these other certain medications, these might yeah. enhance your nutrient requirements. I yeah. found that was a, and it's, super helpful. And unfortunately, it makes the rollout a lot harder and more complicated because so many people are medicated. So you, so and so therefore when we have to sort of caution such a high percentage of the population from just not just don't just go buy nutrients and stop your medications we don't want that's good, that's not a good idea not a good way forward we don't want people to stop their medications cold turkey we do want people to have that discussion with their prescriber then it does make it more challenging because it would be wouldn't it be great if you could just take the nutrients easily alongside medications but unfortunately, it's a more complicated story. But what you can do is change your, your diet alongside medication, and um, you're not going to have such a complicated reaction.
Yeah, no, that's great, Julia. Are the nutrients that you used in your study, are they readily available for people to purchase? They they are available um, in New Zealand to purchase. Uh, and th- this is always one of those ones where I, you know, if you, people ask, well, what exactly do you study? And then I, you know, I have to you know, just remind the listener that I'm not here to, to sell any products. Yeah. And so I'm always very careful about it. We do give all the names of the products that we've studied in the book. And we also did it on the, on the, at MOOC that you and I, you know, you came in on a few of those, um, those videos, but I do provide all that information. Um, but yes, they are available. And we all, and the way that I manage this is that I have a, an email set up where you members of the public can email mental health nutrition, which is one word at canterbury.ac.nz. And we provide them with all the information about all the products that have been studied and the ones that we have studied. And so that's our way of providing the information, but not looking like we're selling. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's awesome. So yes, they, they are available in New Zealand through a distributor in Auckland. Um, it's a little bit of a complex you know, thing because the nutrients are being, you know, this is the complication of the legislation regulating nutrients in New Zealand, which in itself is just a big count of worms. But the short thing is, is that when you have shown that a nutrient, a a nutrient combination has a therapeutic value, like the treatment of ADHD, I'm allowed to say that because I am, you know, governed under different legislation than the people who manufacture and sell. So they can't say that. So that makes it complicated because they can't then provide advice on the dose to be used for the treatment of ADHD because they're not technically allowed to sell it for the treatment of any kind of illness. So the legislation really needs to be changed. um, But that's not about to change anytime soon with the distraction the government has with that virus. Yeah, and and also I suppose that you that's some of the the information. Obviously, the information is available in your book, but also if people were to email, yeah, um, they would also get that information. Absolutely. So we do provide we do tell people how to do that because obviously they want to know. It's the first thing yeah. that they ask me. So we yeah we just I just need to be careful because I've had you know going back to some of the flack I've had. One of the things that's happened to me several times over time is that I had a official information act requests have been done on my work and they are deliberately trying to see whether or not I have any uh, financial relationships with any of the companies. And of course I don't. And that always comes out when they go through all of my records, but it's an unpleasant thing to have to go through. And so the less I, I go out there saying, this is what we do then hopefully the the more people will kind of go oh she really doesn't have any the, any any financial or other tie yeah julia there is so much that that i could ask you i really wanted to talk about the gut microbiome i might need to do that another time because That's one okay. last thing i do want to talk to you mm-hmm. about is of course your experience miq yeah. but not only just your personal experience but also just your general feel about the level of distress in the i guess community and the population with regards to covid what people are you know and the, the change in normal life and just your yeah. thoughts on the whole thing yeah so i guess the way i'm thinking about it is it do does our work on stress um, have any implications for people who are experiencing stress associated with COVID um, and uh, coronavirus or the fear of coronavirus or the stress of lockdown and all of that. And I, I, the experience that I had going to the United Kingdom in, over the last three weeks was that it was made acutely aware how stressed they are. But what surprised me was how hypervigilant I suddenly became. 
And I hadn't experienced that level of hypervigilance since the Christchurch earthquakes, but it was the exact same feeling. It was that same kind of what's going to happen, scanning your environment. You know, for earthquakes, it was when's the next earthquake going to happen? Do I have somewhere where I can go where I'm going to be safe? With the coronavirus, it's like, is there, you know, are these people, these random strangers who are walking by, do they have the coronavirus? And it wasn't that I feared getting coronavirus per se. I feared getting coronavirus such that I ended up with a positive COVID test and couldn't leave the United Kingdom and come home again. So it was a different, you know, what was going on for me was perhaps a little bit different for other people. But it was that same hypervigilance. And I'm sure that's happened in Auckland a lot more than it has in Christchurch um, for people, you know, again, because that's it's come up a, a number of times over the last year. And so there, then I think actually the nutrient research that we've done could very well be relevant to people who are experiencing that level of stress because the body doesn't differentiate between, oh, well, it's a stressor associated with a virus or a stressor associated with an earthquake or a flood or, you know, or what's happening in my workplace. The, the fight flight response is still triggered. And so given that we've shown that that can be helpful to give additional nutrients during a time of great stress, I suppose I'd say, I think in translation, it, there could be some benefit for people taking additional nutrients if they're experiencing a lot of stress associated with the implications of the coronavirus, whether or not that's the the restrictions, the lockdown, whatever. Yeah, no, that's great. And you and I spoke before we came on just, and that I noticed with a lot of my clients is that their everyday stresses seem to be at a next level, possibly because there's this underlying yeah. stress that, that we've all normalized basically. Yeah. And even now, even over a year in where things are beginning yeah. to, to you, be on the path to normal, whatever that might be. I think we're you depleted. Know, I think then you've had this, you know, again, long-term depletion. I've just not been less resilient when, you know, something that you might have coped with before coronavirus, people are just not coping with it now. Yeah. yeah and maybe no, it's I because don't. of that underlying, just that, you're, that, just that level of arousal is just that much higher. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Julia, um, so I took all these notes. I got through three paragraphs <laughs> and I probably didn't leave chapter one of your book, actually, because I – but look, this has been like a really – um, uh, thought-provoking, I think, conversation. I feel for for people who'll be listening to it who were not familiar with research on nutrients mm. in the brain, uh, but also, of course, the whole discussion in and around the medication um, research, and and I think that's really good to sort of bring some awareness to mm. that and know that this isn't a, a bashing of medication at all it's yeah. just looking at the system and looking at the available information I feel like you do a really nice job of sort of navigating that ground I hope so um, I hope so yeah <laughs> yes well thank you Mickey and 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 also promoting the book but also I mean for your your listeners may not know how much you've contributed to my knowledge base and so and you know you oh. you read it one of our chapters early on and and that's because that you know, as psychologists, we need to be sort of careful about when we navigate into areas of diet, you know, that are maybe more, more familiar to dietitians or nutritionists. And so we, we needed to make sure we were, we were appropriate in what we were saying. And, but it's also 
given me a lot more confidence and being able to talk about those things and feel like, you know what, I do have some value. I do have something I can, that, that I can say. And knowing that not a lot of people are talking about the interface between mental health and nutrition, I guess we do need to sort of take that step up and, and, and play, a, play a bit of a role in the education. Absolutely, because we don't learn this stuff. We don't learn about nutrition in the brain. So it makes perfect sense that you'd be the one to talk about it. So I'm so pleased. (laughs) Lovely, Julia. Thanks so much for your time. No problem. All right, team. I highly recommend Julia's TED Talk. Uh, her book, The Better Brain, it's a fabulous read, really explains it in such good detail, the importance of nutrients for the brain. And I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And as I said, all of the links that we discussed, you can find in the show notes for this week's episode. Next week, I am delighted to bring to you my chat with Dr. Dan Plews. So look out for that one. He's an awesome low-carb exercise physiologist. He's such a wealth of information in that space. So we had a super fun chat. Looking forward to bringing that to you. Until then, though, you can catch me on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, or hop on over onto my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can find access to my meal plans, my recipe-only access, or book a consultation with me. Awesome team, have a fab week, and look forward to catching you next week.